0: There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent.
1: the rate that's of great concern. Uh, what so do you so? think that rate down to you? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need, some still doubt that we have the will to act, but I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic. This is episode 78. In today's episode, Beth Spencer, writer, poet, and new member of the Climactic Collective, has an in-depth interview with James Bradley multi-award-winning Australian fiction and non-fiction writer. They discuss the language we use to describe the climate crisis, and how it's evolving, how to engage with the Anthropocene without succumbing to despair, and the role of the arts in these times, primarily in fiction and non-fiction writing. This is the full-length interview. But coming soon to the first new show in the Climactic Network, you'll be able to hear this story on Artbreaker. With even more readings from James and snappier production. But this interview is a treat, and we wanted to bring it to you now. Because in case you're in Melbourne on the 25th of September, you can see James yourself in conversation with Sophie Cunningham at the University of Melbourne. Links to that event are in the show notes. And without further ado, here's Beth Spencer's interview with James Bradley.
0: Welcome to Art Breaker, the newest podcast on the Climactic Network, where we explore the intersection of art and creativity in a time of climate crisis. My name is Bess Spencer, and my fabulous guest today is multi-award-winning author and critic James Bradley. James has published four widely acclaimed novels, including "Clade," which was published in 2015, and this was one of the first, if not the first, overtly climate fiction novels published in Australia. All of his books have been shortlisted for or awarded prizes, including his first book, which was Poetry. He edited The Penguin Book of the Ocean, and he also writes essays and reviews. In fact, he was awarded the Pascal Prize for his criticism and reviews in 2012. He has a young adult fiction trilogy in process called The Change and the first two books are out now with Pan Macmillan and the third book will be published next year along with a new adult novel which we're all looking forward to. And if that's not enough to talk about James also has had two really important essays published this year that address climate change directly. How Australia's coal madness led to a Adani was in the Monthly back in April, just before the election, and just out in the spring issue of Mianjin, a very beautiful and devastating and important essay called Unearthed, Last Days of the Anthropocene. James Bradley, welcome to Climactic.
2: Hi Beth, it's great to be here.
0: I was just wondering where you would place clade, your novel clade, in terms of science fiction, speculative fiction, literary fiction, cli-fi, which was a term someone coined, apocalyptic, dystopian? How would you describe it? Yeah, look, I think all that
2: terminology is really interesting. One of the things that happened when Clade came out, uh, which I was very aware of, was that when it came out in Australia, it, it, which was in, at the beginning of 2015, I think there was a degree of, I guess, kind of surprise or or confusion about how to kind of categorise it or talk about it. And you just kind of got the sense that when people were looking at it, they weren't quite sure what it was. They, they kind of thought, is this science fiction? Is it, you know, what are we going to call it? And what was really interesting to me is when it came out in the UK and the US towards the end of 2017, people knew exactly what it was. And there'd been this kind of shift in, I guess, the way we talk about and think about these kinds of books in just that period of time. Part of that is that. There's been a very energetic campaign run by a man called Danny Bloom to promote the idea of cli-fi. Uh, look, I I must say from my point of view, I'm always a bit wary of the terminology. I mean, it seems to me that the kind of environmental crisis touches everything in a way that means that, in the same way modernity touches everything, It's it's a condition rather than a genre. And, you know, I mean, it seems to me that there is a... A kind of erasure that you see going on in lots of our literature and lots of our film where we we don't talk about these things for various reasons but you know it, it seems to me that if you're not you know kind of engaging with and writing about those kinds of things at the moment it's difficult for me to see how your work is really about the world we inhabit.
0: A bit like in the 80s and 90s, everyone was trying to work out how they could be a postmodern writer. When we're in the postmodern age, you are a postmodern writer. But it's whether you're doing it consciously or whether you're trying to resist that and ignore that and still write like a, a modernist writer. We are in the Anthropocene and so everything can be looked through that lens in a way or should be. But there is a huge challenge in thinking about and writing about a gradual catastrophe. I mean, science fiction's had the disaster apocalyptic is a very common trope, the sort of the day after. But this idea of this gradual catastrophe, this long process and complex process and of grief that is like this whole unending series of shocks, even one of your chapters in Clade is called Boiling the Frog. So can you tell us a bit about the process you went through to work out how to address this issue, how to write a novel that looks at this kind of gradual thing?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting, that idea. There was a wonderful essay written about 15 years ago now by Robert McFarlane, and one of the things he said was that the... You know the the, the literature. You know, he argued that climate change is difficult to write about because it happens gradually, and what it lacks is the kind of iconography that comes with other kinds of apocalyptic writing. So you know you don't have that flash of the nuclear, you don't have the red button, you know you don't have the hordes of zombies. You know it, it's it's quite a quite a difficult thing to kind of capture this process of of gradual change. I think the way we write about it has moved on since then. I do think one of the things that's really interesting over the last five or 10 years, is watching the way, I guess, a kind of metaphorical language for talking about these things has begun to emerge in the way that you see particular kind of images and motifs and ideas kind of recurring in books that are, that are engaged with these questions, which I think is, is always very interesting. Um, but, I mean, I guess for me, I mean, the book in a lot of ways is a book about time. I mean, in an odd kind of way, I see it as a kind of geological fiction. You know, it's, it's a fiction that's about deep time in both directions. And I guess when I was writing it, one of the things, certainly when I was starting out, was I, I found myself you know wanting to write about climate change, trying to find a way to write about it. And the problem is, of course, you very quickly find yourself writing a book that's about everything. I mean, the problem with climate change, as I said before, is it touches everything. you know. And you want to write a book that's about it, you end up thinking, oh, I, I need to write a book that's about what's happening in India and Africa and Australia and Europe. And it's got to be about every level of society. And it's got to be about the non-human and and it rapidly becomes completely unmanageable. And, and certainly with Clay, I, I had a kind of moment quite early in the process where I went, well, I could flip that around and in a sense write a book which is about quite a small thing, which is a kind of family, and look at the way they kind of track through time and the way their lives intersect with what's going on. I mean, that seemed to me to be a really interesting approach because, I mean, I think there's a couple of things there. It pushes you back onto the idea of kind of human continuity which I think is really important, that kind of sense that, you know, although climate change and environmental crisis is transformative, you know, the sense you're thinking of as a kind of rupture or, or a kind of break, a kind of end of history is really problematic because it stops us yeah you know, we kind of lose our connection to it. but also I think because it allowed me to to do what I I guess what I, one of the things I really wanted to do with the book, which was to understand for myself what it might be like to live through that. You know, and one of the things I was trying very hard to do with the book was to create that sense of I guess an effective sense of what it might be to live through through kind of ongoing climate change over generations.
0: Mm, And it does that very well. It's almost like a, a series of interconnecting love stories and family stories and grief stories. And that idea that even when there's massive disasters, there's still that questions of how you relate to the people closest to you and so on. Can you tell us a bit about the title, Clade?
2: Yeah, the title, I guess, came reasonably early in the process. One of the funny things about titles is, in my experience, you either have them from the beginning, or they're really difficult to find, you know, um, and they really matter because titles. I mean, I always think titles are incredibly important because they're one of the ways that you know what you're writing about. You know, one of the ways that that tell you what the book's about, and one of the things you kind of work within. But the, the the word itself, you know, clade is a scientific term. It means a a group of organisms with a common ancestor. It comes from the Greek word clados, which means you know branch, and it is literally one branch on the, on the web of life. And I, I kind of loved it because it, first of all, you know, that's in a sense what the story is, you know, it's about this one family, but it was also that the word itself, I don't know, I, I kind of love the texture of the word. I, I, I'm, I love words, like I love that kind of, I, I often love, I guess, the kind of textural nature of language, and, and Clade's one of those wonderful words that simultaneously feels very sleek, it feels very modern, it feels very scientific. But then it's got this wonderful kind of echo of words like blade, you know, so it makes you think of forests and sacredness and a series of things like that. And I love that kind of duality about it. So, so yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, but as I say, it's one of those words that I just like the word. Does that make sense? It's it's a wonderful kind of feeling word. And I often think, you know, we end up talking a lot about books in kind of thematic terms, but we don't talk very much, I think, about the linguistic qualities of them and, and the kind of textural and rhythmic qualities of them. And I, certainly when I'm writing, they're the things that I'm worrying about. Like, what's it sound like from sentence to sentence? You know, what's the rhythm feel like? How's it, how's it kind of working?
0: Well, as I said before, you started as a poet. We were actually in the same series of poetry in our first books. I think it's a great title for all those reasons, but also because it also gives an idea of the structure of the book. It's like interlinked stories that also kind of feed back into each other in lots of different ways. So the the whole structure is not just about clade, but it kind of mimics that in a way. The family in this ongoing family over 50, 60 years is, is kind of like a multifaceted protagonist, if you think in that classic plot way of you've got a protagonist and an antagonist. And so the family is our way in usually... You know you want to identify with your protagonist in some way, and so they're standing in for all of us in some ways, and it in a classic way that would then pose the extreme weather as the antagonist, the enemy almost that they' that's threatening them and that they're trying to work around or survive. And in a lot of early literature in Australia, that's the way the landscape was seen. It was the enemy, it was the the harsh, heartless, impersonal drought and so on that people had to fight against. But when you put it in the context of climate change, as you do, we are threatened, but we're also the threat. So it kind of subverts that whole conventional narrative mechanism in a way of the way you come in and identify the way that you're pulled through in plot, like you're barracking for somebody. What sort of challenges did you have about keeping that narrative energy going? That's actually a really interesting thought. I
2: don't think I'd ever thought about that kind of connection to the traditional idea of the landscape in Australian literature before. Well, that's, that's that's really interesting, an interesting thought. I mean, to go back, you were talking about the structure before, and one of the things I wanted the structure very much to do was to work. And I wanted it to work like, I guess, like a poem. You know, I wanted that sense that the book, you know, it's in 10 parts and the parts all kind of speak to each other across the book. And I, occasionally people say it's a book of stories, and it's like it's not a book of stories, it's a novel. It's just a novel that doesn't have a kind of central narrative. I guess in terms of kind of making that work, I suppose I had a kind of structure from the beginning. And, and it always seems to me that we assume that narrative only or that narrative energy only arises out of those kind of traditional ideas about, you know, kind of Aristotelian ideas about kind of conflict and change and things like that. But it seems to me you can actually generate urgency in a whole series of other ways you know, and some of them around voice. There's other kind of techniques you can use. So it is a book that I guess kind of moves away from a, a conventional narrative to to be in pieces. That seems to me to be simultaneously a way of, as you say, offering different perspectives, showing you change over time. And I very much wanted the book. I guess one of the things I really wanted the book to do was for a lot of it to happen in the gaps. I wanted to write a book where, you know, so often ten years will have passed between between the different sections and it doesn't fill in the blanks quite often. And I wanted that sense that what's absent is really present in some sense, because that kind of captures one of the things that's happening in the book, which is this kind of thinning of the world and this kind of losing of the world and this dropping away of things. But it also means that as the book goes on, you get this kind of acceleration in time. So I wanted this kind of sense that it was moving forward in time more and more towards the end as it kind of moves out into the future.
0: Yes, does that very well. Maybe I'll get you just to read a little passage.
2: She wakes with the dawn, light flooding into her room. When she and Tom bought the house, it was impossible to sleep past sunrise, especially in summer. Daybreak bringing kookaburras and cuckoos and swooping flocks of cockatoos. Their crazed laughter and screeching clamour echoing through the trees like a memory of the primordial forest. The diversity and profligacy of the bird life was a big part of what Tom loved about being here his pleasure in it a source of amusement for the two of them. It was the there of them he said he loved, their presence and life and total absorption in the moment. Most of the birds are gone now. She is not sure when they began to disappear. Elsewhere there have been huge die-offs, great waves of birds falling from the skies. Yet here the process has been more gradual, species slowly disappearing, those that remain less numerous with each passing year.
0: Beautiful, thank you. So, do you think writing about it did help you deal with, with it, with the emotions of it, the horror, the anxiety, the grief, the grief and guilt? I think that's what I found interesting is that sort of, you can write a book where you're playing out grief, but this is grief and guilt, and it's on a, so it's such a daily basis for us, and the depression, the anger, the whole range of emotions. Did it help you deal with it?
2: Um, no. <laughs> I think would be the short answer to that.
0: Or how do you deal with it? I mean, you're writing about this so much in so many different ways. How do you deal with it?
2: I'm good at compartmentalising, which is part of it. I mean, it's certainly one of the things I was doing with Clade, and you know, one of the things with Clade's worth remembering is I was writing it back in kind of 2013. So it's now some years since it was written, in a way. Um, And things have moved very, very fast and gotten much worse very, very fast. Certainly faster than I thought it was going to happen when I was writing the book. And I I guess it worked, the novel worked in a sense for me, because one of the things I was engaged in was a kind of intellectual exercise about trying to think through what it was going to be like. Because I think one of these things is it's actually incredibly difficult to imagine what the world is going to be like. There's that sense that, you know, you look around yourself and if if you... if what you do is make a realistic appraisal of what the science says, you know, most of what's around us is going to be utterly transformed within a decade or two, and that's incredibly difficult to imagine. So one of the things I was doing with the book was to try and give myself a framework for imagining that, and I guess in that sense it succeeded. I actually find in an odd way writing about this stuff and thinking about it all the time, which I do quite a lot, is actually not good for your mental health. I mean, you end up in a situation where you're wandering around and you feel like this kind of lunatic you know, and you're looking at the world and thinking this is all doomed all the time, and that, you know, it's 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 quite a difficult it's quite a difficult thing to deal with some of the time. You know, not all of the time. Like I say, I'm pretty good at I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing, <laughs> but um, but you know, it is, it is it is certainly there are moments when I find it very very difficult and where it kind of all crashes down, and then certainly. I have to be quite careful about how I talk about it around people, you know, because there is a kind of conversation that if you're involved in the world of climate and environmental stuff, that you end up having with other people in that world where you kind of talk to each other and it, you have someone you can talk to about how bad things are going to get and how quickly that's going to happen. But you can't have that conversation with other people because you sound like a lunatic and then you depress them and upset them. So it's, it's kind of a socially very awkward conversation. And in an odd kind of way, I think that's one of the things that fiction does and that you know you can do as a writer is kind of introduce those things into the conversation and force people to kind of grapple with them. But, you know, the reasons people don't grapple with them are because a lot of the time it's just too difficult.
0: It is indeed. And it's it sounds like it's, I mean, when you're... When you're a writer and you're obsessed with a topic, you can, you've got to be careful not to <laughs> sort of like bore people around you with this thing that's totally taking you over. But this is a topic that you want people to be obsessed about and you want other people to know about. So, But at the same time, I can Im- imagine that it, it would really create a difficulty with relationships and so on. It sounds like having that community around you of people that you can trust to have a conversation with where they're not going to try and minimalise it, but they're also not going to depress you?
2: Look, I think it is important. I mean, I actually think one of the things... You know, I mean, I think we are at a point where we're long past the point where we can stop this. Mm. You know, there, I think there is still a chance that we will hold off the very worst effects of climate change. But, you know, even saying that, you know, I mean, we're looking you know, I I think probably we're unlikely to keep it under two degrees at this point. And at two degrees, you know, you're talking hundreds of millions of refugees by the middle of the century. You know, you're talking about a complete derangement of society. You know, I mean, I actually think that trying to get to grips with that is very difficult and very confusing. You know, and I mean, I spend a lot of time thinking about it. I find it very confusing and very difficult. Um, And I think that the actually talking... Amongst ourselves and having serious conversations about what's going on is one of the things we need to start doing. And part of that is actually about a kind of empathic process of accepting that there is a process of kind of grief and anger and fear and that we need to be able to talk to each other about that.
0: Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And we habitually shy away from talking about sort of politics, religion, and. But yeah, I I agree with you. I think these have to be in the same way as you're saying it, all of us as writers have to start. Looking at this and how it impacts on our work, but also our relationships and conversations and everything we do. I'm interested in the relationship between your essays on climate change the one on coal, the one on the oceans, both of which were in the monthly and this latest one, where I think you really particularly wrestle with that line between seeing it clearly and stating it for what it is at the same time as, well, how do then we go on? How do we keep choosing? We'll talk about that in a minute, but I'm interested in the relationship between your essays and your fiction. To me, what they have in common is, is that you have a strong interest in how we write about and interpret the past, including the very recent past, and how we imagine the future. So... Have you had a background as a historian or studied history? Is history relevant in writing speculative into the future?
2: I suppose so. One of the things you're always trying to do when you're writing nonfiction around this subject is, you know, I have a real belief that it's better not to... You don't don't need to exaggerate the risks. You know, just stating the facts around all of this stuff is actually powerful enough. And there's something really important about kind of putting those facts into the conversation but one of the things that you're always trying to do when you're writing about it is to then place them within some kind of context and I I guess the kind of historical question is is certainly one of them because these are things that need to be understood within a longer history I mean the place we are comes out of a you know, it comes out of a process of colonialism, it comes out of a, you know, a series of kind of economic arrangements, it, 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 it takes us to a particular place. But it's also important because it seems to me that one of the things that thinking about these problems are, you know, demands that we do is we need to think about what happens right now, we need to think about what happens tomorrow, you know, we need to think about what happens in 10 years. But we need to accept that we're now in a kind of process which is generational, you know, and both the effects of what's going on now are going to be experienced over, you know, probably hundreds of generations but, you know, the process of trying to get the climate back under control, to kind of adapt to what's going on, it's not something that's going to happen in 10 years. It's something that's going to take, you know, 100 years, 200 years. And so it seems to me that that kind of larger view is really useful because it allows you to kind of think about that larger that larger frame. Mm.
0: I guess I'm also thinking about the way in the coal essay, for example, there's that real narrative, like it's a Nonfiction, but you it's almost like a thriller when you read it. It's got that sort of the dramatic events, there's um, a lot of play and counterplay and so on, and, and a strong sense of place. I had this sort of sense that you were actually travelling and taking us with you on a road trip up to the Galiloe Basin, around to the Great Barrier Reef, across all those places. And there was so much sort of drama in it, it was almost like being pulled through reading a thriller in a way, because you've got these beautiful descriptions of place, you've got this real precision of language, and I think that's, as you were saying, the language is so important. If we're going to talk about these things, we have to, this precision, and I think that also to me is, I think of as the task of the historian, it's not just to tell a story, That's it's the precision matters as much as you can. and. There's play and counterplay. There's dramatic events, and and even though your tone doesn't actually change throughout the essay, my reactions to it was sort of like this roller coaster of emotions, from outrage to even more outrage to tears at one stage, and and then more outrage, and then yay, you know, when when there's a bit of a win, and so on. So it was really interesting to sort of see how you took what is a slice of very recent history that if we are going to understand where we are it's so important to see the way that played out and you turned it into this story and so I'm, i'm curious about the difference for you if there is one when you're researching for a novel and when you're researching for a piece like this that's
2: a really interesting question i mean certainly with the adani piece it's such a dreadful story you know i mean and i mean with that one I was very lucky. The monthly gave me a lot of space to work with. It's an incredibly complex and complicated and confusing story. But with it, I had the benefit of both space to write, but also, you know, a a kind of team of editors who are behind you, helping you make sure that you've got everything right, which was really, really helpful. But it seemed to me that with that one, there was a real merit, a real kind of importance in just stacking up the evidence about questions like the kind of capture of our political class by the the coal industry. It's one of those things that we all think is there and we all talk about, but you don't often tend to see the evidence stacked up in one place to show it. And there was something, it seemed to me there was something really valuable about just stacking some of that evidence up. So it becomes inescapable to people what's going on. And, And I think around a lot of this stuff, that process of just getting stuff down, in a sense, bearing witness to it, getting it on paper, Putting it in one place, trying to put it in some kind of framework really matters. And I think, as you say, with that stuff, precision really, really matters. You know, it really matters to me that you have the facts right. You know, it really matters to me that you don't massage the facts. Because one of the things you can often do is go, well, I found the worst case study. I'll quote that. And I won't quote the one that says, well, maybe it's not going to be quite that bad. You know, so I, I, I'm i very wary of doing that thing where you use science in a kind of rhetorical kind of way. But, you know, so it seems to me that that kind of adherence to the facts is a, is a real strength in itself. And just kind of synthesising that stuff and putting it in one place is a really good thing to do. I guess when you're writing a novel, it's a very different process. And you're, you know, I mean, I feel with novels it's less... You certainly don't have the obligation to be correct. I think you do in nonfiction i think it's perfectly okay to make things up i mean it seems to me with fiction your responsibility is to the reader is a rather different one about giving them something which is convincing and that creates a kind of space where they can they can think about things so i'm working on a book at the moment and you know one of the things that happens in it is there's been an, a kind of an abrupt sea level rise of about you know 3 or 4 meters you know, which happens in about a decade. And I suspect, I'm pretty sure that scientifically that can't happen. It's it's pretty unlikely to happen, but it's a kind of acceleration of what's going on anyway. And it gets you to a place where you can talk about a world that's been changed in various ways. So it seems to me that my obligation there is to be convincing. Sometimes being convincing is about being plausible. But it's also just about kind of convincing. I mean, I sometimes use this example, but, you know, you look at comic books. You know, Superman comes from Krypton. He is allergic to kryptonite, which comes from his planet. You know, he gets his powers from sunlight. It makes absolutely no sense at a scientific level, but it kind of makes thematic, dramatic narrative sense.
0: Absolutely. I think I was just thinking of something that you... I read you saying to, I think it was in a Charlotte, the Charlotte Wood interview, where you said you're often looking for the emotional logic of the story, of the novel, and the narrative shape of it, and that when you're writing and revising it, you're sort of writing and revising until it feels right to you. And I thought that was really interesting. It kind of was almost like you're looking for the ecology of that story to create that world that has a, a logic and it works and it's precise. In that way, that it kind of sings rather than being congruent with the facts outside the story.
2: I love that idea of the kind of ecology of the story. I mean, it seems to me that stories, you know, they have a kind of life of their own, you know, which is about how the pieces all work together. And one of the things I find quite difficult, in fact, is that kind of process of editing where people start saying to you, I'm not sure this makes sense. And I find myself thinking, well, it makes sense to me. (laughs) And, And having to force myself to think about what the reader might think, what might be missing for the reader, you know, is often a quite different discipline for me to the discipline of finding, I guess, the kind of emotional and narrative and truth to the story and it's kind of the shape of its ecology, I guess.
0: Just going back to the coal essay, one thing that I thought you described really well that had always puzzled me is when you read about traditional owners having granted a license for mining and you kind of think, well, that doesn't kind of make sense given their relationship to the land and the sacredness of it. But there was a passage in there where you really spelt out the dilemma facing traditional owners due to the way that the native title Act operates. Do you want it to just say a few things about that?
2: That system is set up in a way that makes it extremely difficult for, for traditional owners. Certainly in the case of the Adani mine, you know, it's a very messy situation. And, you know, it's quite clear that the traditional owners have been disenfranchised in in a number of ways. I mean, it's it's a fantastically complex kind of set of events because you know you've got a a kind of community that's that is itself quite complicated dealing with a process within which they really don't have any power and i i guess it's quite shocking when you see it 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 laid out like that there's actually a really fantastic series being written on the mine at the moment in the saturday paper by anna crean um and in fact just this last saturday there was a piece about what's going on with the traditional owners up there, which I thought was very, very strong. I mean, I think both that piece and the work she did when she wrote the quarterly essay about coal about oh, three or four or five years ago, whenever it was, is terrifically good on, on both on, I guess, the kind of legalities of all of that that stuff, but also on the, you know, the way the various personalities around it are, have behaved and, and, and I guess the kind of duplicity of the government processes around it. The Adani story is a terrible, terrible story, you know, I mean, it is a story about this kind of mine, which should never be built, you know, which has been shepherded through by governments, you know, it has been subsidised by governments, I mean, it's just, once you actually stack the stuff up, I mean, the thing is, it's the most appalling, it is the most appalling story, you know, and it's one of those things, certainly while I was writing it, you know, I... I must say, I kept having this reaction where, you know, I kept thinking, I thought this thing was crook before I started now (laughs) that I've actually spent some time looking at it. It's so much crooker than I thought it was.
0: And that terrible dilemma that the traditional owners face that you pointed out, that they don't have a choice if a corporation or a government wants to exploit their land in some way, they actually don't have a choice under the current Native Title Act to say no completely. They have a choice of negotiating some kind of a deal where they will get something from it or they have the choice of actually losing of having it taken away from them anyway and this often creates the tension between the different it's like a, it's a strategy thing about how to save as much as you can rather than
2: yeah and look I mean I don't I don't want to speak on behalf of anyone about this, but, I mean, it's certainly one of the lawyers I spoke to when I was talking about it said that, you know, the, the situation under the, the current legislation is that the mining companies go to you and they say, look, you know, we're going to rip your arm off, you know, but you can have a bit of compensation if you like. You you don't get a choice about the arm coming off at the end of the day. I mean, that is kind of how it works. I mean, there is a inability, you know, they don't actually have a right of refusal.
0: That's right, and I don't think that's made clear enough when we read about these things.
2: No, you know, I mean, and these things clearly exist within a kind of colonial project, which is about the dispossession of traditional owners. And it is, you know, I mean, it's it's appalling.
0: It is appalling. The essay, one of the strengths of it is the way it does sort of show this back and forth, this play that so many different people, different groups who fought against the mine over many years using a whole variety of tactics, you know, legal challenges, pressure tactics, on the banks and so on and while this hasn't actually stopped it it has reduced its size which i think you point out and cut off a lot of its funding sources and it's also radically shifted the debate i mean you mentioned that um only a decade ago the notion the world needed to transition away from coal was a fringe idea and now it's widely accepted as an inevitability i i really like the way this this essay this history sort of does show that complexity of power that it's not like you know it's, it's not the top down view of power it's more Foucaultian kind of idea of power as diffuse and existing at many points it's a complex of actions and interactions very dynamic I love the way you sort of show all the different forces it's not even a linear thing I think you might quote Rebecca that later on in the other essay about that, that it's not a linear thing, that even when you lose, you might be inspiring somebody else. And so there's just so many forces going on there, you don't know the impact of what you do sometimes.
2: Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's right. I mean, and it is a fantastically complex story. And it is also, I mean, and this is something that I think David Ritter's argued very eloquently in a book he wrote on the subject, that one of the things you're seeing around this is a kind of really organised and quite deliberate attempt to kind of push against the kind of democratic structures such as they are around all of this. So, I mean, you have this this ongoing process of the criminalization of protest, of the removal of rights of appeal, of kind of pretending that people who are arguing against... Pretending environmentalists are somehow people who should be criminalised. and And that kind of process of kind of the exercise of state power is really, really interesting. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day and and thinking that, you know, we talk about our governments needing to be on a war footing to deal with climate change. And, you know, it would seem to me that in Australia, our governments are on a war footing to deal with climate change. But when you look at them criminalising protesters, when you look at them subsidising the companies that are building the mines, when you look at the kind of, you know, massive kind of collusion between those industries and government we are on a war footing, we're just on the wrong side.
0: Good point. (laughs) Very depressing point. This piece was written on the eve of the May 2019 federal election. And as I was reading it, putting myself back at that time, it was like there was, even though the Labor Party was very equivocal about um, their position on it, there was still that great hope or even expectation in a lot of quarters that they would win that election. And that The story then would become of how activism and economic pressure and the legal challenges in the courts and the allies all coming together with a new government that, like it did back in the days of the Franklin River and the Daintree and so on and Kakadu, that the ALP might then sort of respond to the activist pressure and will get somewhere. But then there was like this devastating plot twist in the story on... The night of the 23rd of May, and um, the Liberal National Party got back in with a very tiny majority.
2: That's right. I mean, certainly when I wrote the essay, I think, like everybody else, I assumed that, you know, there was really very little chance of the Liberals winning the election, and they did. Um, you know, and, and I think what's been really interesting is watching, and extremely depressing, is watching the Labour Party after the election. And, and, you know, there's a lot of people in the Labour Party who blame the anti-Darney movement for losing those seats for them up there. I don't have access to the research, but I suspect that probably the extremely confused message would have quite a lot to do with it as well. But what you've seen from the ALP is a kind of reversion to a set of old positions. You know, one of the first things they did after the election was they went into the Senate and voted in favour of a motion supporting the opening up of the Galilee. There's been an awful lot of kind of a movement back to co- within the party towards the idea that they should be supporting the coal industry.
0: I mean that's that's that whole role of history writing really, is that you've got we've got access to certain kind of evidence, traces, facts, if you want to call them that, agreed things, but it's how you interpret them. I think that's such an important time to be writing these kind of histories.
2: I mean, I think at the moment we sit at a really odd point for lots of people, and, We have, if you look at the science, about 10 years. To have any chance of staying under 1.5, we've got about 10 years to get emissions down to half of what they are. At the moment, they're rising still, you know, somewhere between 1% and 3% a year. So, you know, what we actually need to be doing is getting them down to about 50% of what they are over the next decade. Now, at this point, I think the reality is that, you know, conventional politics has failed. You know, I, I don't think there's any question about that and that means that it's you know that the only way anything's going to happen now is if you know citizens make it happen they go out in the streets and make this happen and they do the things that make make change happen but the problem is in australia we have the two major parties who are you know and i, d- I don't want to engage in they're as bad as each other because they are not as bad as each other you know the labour party went to the election with credible kind of credible targets So and thought that their offering on climate was certainly had some gaps in it um like their continued support for the coal industry um but you know they were certainly talking about kind of targets that were kind of about where they should be and and a series of things like that so the parties are not the same um but both major parties are a break on action in this country one way or another and and the question becomes but the problem then is that the only way you're going to get real change is if you can get a party of government to do this stuff so we're in this kind of really odd bind Where, you know, people need to kind of take direct action, people need to be doing things, people need to be protesting, people need to be joining political parties, they need to be doing all of the things that you do in order to enact social change and to create movements. But simultaneously, what we need to be doing is working on the parties. To change these things because I mean we're not going to get any of this stuff through unless we can actually get it through parliament
0: oh absolutely and i think you make that point really well that it is the activism the legal challenges all those things are kind of like providing essential context and background and, and, and an essential part of it because i think you say something about that left to their own devices govern, governments won't do Anything because they are in in hock to the coal industry and business as usual, but on the other hand, activism on its own isn't enough because we actually need elected governments, representative democracy, to change these things and look back at the past. It was sort of it was that combination of activism around things like the Franklin and the Daintree and the moratoriums and so on, and then getting a change of government where you got a government that was more able to be influenced in that direction. And it's it's like a, it's a terrible tragedy. What could have been a story of, was, was moving in that essay towards a story of, you know, and then now we keep going and we might get some change, became overnight a terrible, terrible tragedy. But there is people still working and changing that story. And so, the, as you say, the Labour Party is to my mind, reading it all wrong and reading the the conclusions they're drawing from what happened really need to be challenged. But there's also in the, the global strike, like the school strike, they've started adding in one of their demands to be a just transition to renewables. So it's interesting how the story continues, as you say. And I, I was interested too in the way that the coal essay kind of ended on what could have been a story that expanded out into something good. And then because of what happened, wow. Then you've got the Mianjin essay, which to me really directly looks at that sort of, it goes even harder into the brutal, devastating honesty about what we're facing, but really trying to cope with that plot twist of, well, how do we maintain hope? How do we keep going?
2: Look, I think we, as a culture, I mean, as much as you can talk about the world as a culture, but I mean, you know, There is a kind of intense crisis happening all over the world, you know, and it's both an environmental crisis, but, you know, it's a crisis of institutions, you know, it's it's a crisis of inequality, you know, so, I mean, you have these kind of intersecting and interrelated crises all going on at once, and it, it can look really, really difficult. I mean, you know, when you've got Trump in the White House, when you've got Scott Morrison in the lodge, you know, I mean, (laughs) Boris Johnson in (laughs) 10 Downing Street, you know, Bolsonaro in Brazil, you know, I mean, it starts to look, it, it starts to look really, really difficult and despairing, you know, and part of what we need to do is to find a narrative that allows us to remember that we are not powerless, you know, that people can change things. And, Getting people away from that kind of learned helplessness, that sense that you can't do anything, seems to me to be really, really, I mean, it's vital at this moment. But it's it's also something that, it's one of the reasons I find the school strike so, so inspiring, because it is actually about, you know, people and kids saying, well, actually, you know, they're not going to fix it for us, we've got to fix it that seems to me to be an incredibly potent message and and one
0: I think that is that is spreading and i love the way in in the essay you talk about the the surprising joyfulness of going to the school strike with your daughters yes
2: no i mean it was um it was a wonderful thing because i mean i think when i said earlier that i think one of the things we need to learn to do is to actually kind of support each other in this and i think that sense of discovering that you're not alone is a very You know, you're not alone in your confusion, you're not alone in your fear, you're not alone in your sense of powerlessness and lack of agency is both reassuring, but it's also a way of finding agency. You know, it's a way of reminding yourself that, you know, on your own, you might not be able to achieve very much. But, you know, with 500 other people around you, you possibly can.
0: This brings me to talking about your um, young adult series, uh, The Change, the first book, The Silent Invasion. Um, came out a couple of years ago, The Buried Ark, I think it was last year. And the third book, when we find out what happens, <laughs> is coming out next year. But I loved the way in that, so it's set in the future, there is this thing happening that, changes everything is something that interrupts normal life that they can't ignore and demands a total response and then you've got the different kinds of responses that happen so the story is through the eyes of callie and it's not a didactic story by any means and it's it's very complicated because there's so many aspects about the change this thing that's happening that is um it's not not like a straight allegory because the change is also very beautiful in a way and it has this sense of oneness about it and the intelligence of everything is connected but it's also quite threatening to humans so where you've got this story going on you actually get to enter the pages and live through this young woman who never gives up hope who is ferocious in the way she will find a way through anything and she's always choosing she's she's never she's never passive never she gives up and it also, she's she's in a position where she is very unsupported by the government and the people and the authorities and the leaders around her, and yet she she carries on. So I was just wondering how it felt writing that for you.
2: So they were an, they've been a really interesting thing to write for a number of reasons, one of which is they're a kind of book that I'd kind of not written before, not, not in a sense necessarily because they're for younger readers, although that was certainly something I'd not done before, but because they're an extremely plot-driven kind of, high narrative kind of story and it's you know in a sense not the kind of thing I normally write and it was really exciting and kind of fun to sort of learn to use those tools and to go well I'm going to write a story in which you know there are gunfights there are you know I mean all of that that kind of stuff that you were I you know I couldn't wouldn't normally do I suppose what I also wanted to do though I mean a funny thing the funny thing with any book is that I think that they tend to begin in quite particular places and certainly with these ones, I had this quite clear image very early, early on, which was of these two kids, you know, two sisters in a, a kind of alien forest, you know, and and there was a flood, you know, and that, that was kind of what I had at the beginning when I started writing it. And so the the sense of these kind of young girls, of the kind of bond between them and of them being in a kind of alien world was something that I, I was working with right, right from the start. And... I guess that kind of sense of strangeness and beauty was something I was, I was kind of playing around with as well. Because I mean, I do think there's something about the kind of uncanniness of environmental change and the weirdness of the world we find ourselves in that I kind of wanted to write about and, and, and think about in the books.
0: There's also, particularly in the second one, The Buried Ark, there's a very strong sense of we don't actually know the future for sure. So even though we know, kind of looks like everything's pretty dire and so on, you, we actually don't know every factor. We don't know what unknown factor might happen, what people's actions might change things. And so that's why Cali keeps going. And she really embodies this, which I found really interesting because I kind of was almost on the side of, yes, give up kind of thing. And then she's she just keeps going. She's like an antidote in a way to those feelings of despair and hopelessness, just to read it and be in the world. And also going through all those emotions she goes through, the anger and despair and the grief and the unfairness of it. And she's, she's, she's expressing these emotions as she goes. So I just want to recommend it to listeners as, you know, if you're looking for... A book that just takes you out of what's going on and maybe gives you that sort of sense of courage and heart to sort of a bit of escapism as well as introduces you to be in a place where you are contemplating how you respond to things how you respond to this kind of massive challenge i would recommend it and in fact missy higgins is quoted on the cover saying a seriously addictive page turner the kind of book i would have devoured as a teenager in fact i devoured it as an adult (laughs) so when you started writing this, did you have a sense of where it's going? I don't want to just give away the next one or anything like that, but is this was it a process of discovery for you as well? You said you started with this idea of just the, the two sisters.
2: Um, yeah, no, I did. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that kind of idea of not giving up, because it seems to me that's actually a really important idea. And I think often when we're confronted with the kinds of things we're dealing with now, there is a tendency or a desire or a a kind of completely reasonable feeling that we should just give up. There's no point. But, you know, I mean, it seems to me that I, I talked before about there not being a kind of rupture, you know, and there kind of isn't. I mean, these things are, you keep on going. You keep doing what you can because, you know, there's a the kind of classic thing about it, it's better to save 10% than to save none, you know. So, so I mean, I think that, that that kind of process of not giving up and hoping that you will find a way through is really, really important because it's a way of not despairing. And I think that's really important. But no, with the, the YA books, I had a very clear idea right from the start of the kind of shape of them. Like I wanted to write a series where the first is very intimate and it's about this kind of journey. And the second is a more kind of global story. And then the third is this kind of cosmic story. So I had this very clear shape. I had a reasonably good idea of where each of them went. You know, I had some kind of images that were in the third. I sort of knew where it would end up something happens at the end of the second that I had to kind of wind myself up to convincing myself that I could do, uh, but I did that. I guess I sort of knew the shape, but I didn't necessarily know the meat of the stories from the beginning. And certainly I wrote the first. I mean, the first I wrote in a really odd kind of way. I'd, I'd finished Clade. It was off with my agent or publisher. I can't remember which. And I, I had this kind of weird, empty patch and it was the summer um, and my kids were on holidays and I was home minding them and i was letting them watch like a movie in the afternoons (laughs) and so i just started writing this kind of book in i guess in the afternoons while they were watching watching television for a couple of hours and by the end of the summer holidays i had quite a large chunk of the book and i was really enjoying writing it and I, i kind of had a sense of how to do it and so i went through and finished the book but i then i have a bit of habit of falling over and things so i then thought well i've written the first before I try and sell it, I want to write the second so that I can know I can write the second. So I had this kind of thing where I actually had two of the books done before I I did anything with them because I just wanted to know that they were there and I'd kind of written an outline of the third. So they were reasonably, I mean, in a sense, it's one big novel in three. So they're, they're quite distinct, but it's one story in three parts and that's quite deliberate.
0: Speaking of your children, you're actually one of the very few male authors who regularly gets asked about how being a father has affected your writing.
2: Um, I think it changes your writing a lot. And I think I mean, one of the things about having kids is it brings your strengths and your deficiencies as a human being very starkly into view for you. Um, you know, the things that you are good at, the things that you are bad at, you know, it's it's it's, it's a very interesting process. And I guess... I mean, I guess, and to go back to the idea of despair, I think that one of the things that having kids does is that it puts a kind of flaw on your despair. You know, despair becomes unacceptable if you've got children because you can't do that to them. You can't say the world is unsavable because you've brought them into it. So, you, in a sense, it forces you to work for, better, for a better world, I guess. Um, but... I guess in terms of the kind of having of them and the talking about it, when Clade came out, I made a quite conscious decision to kind of talk about having kids. And it was a kind of political decision around, I guess, the kind of invisibility, you know, because we made a quite clear choice as a couple to kind of co-parent and I looked after the kids a fair bit. It seemed to me that there was value in making that invisible work, which usually falls on women, visible, both because it makes it visible, the work that women do visible and the work that women writers in particular do visible, but also because it seems to me that, you know, it's actually worth talking about different ways of, you know, being a man, you know, kind of a masculinity, which is not completely defined by work and in opposition to kind of domestic labor. And, and in an odd kind of way, that was a quite clear political decision to, to kind of do all of that.
0: Just want to go back to the point you said about having children means that you have to put a floor on your despair. That's something, I guess, for me, I've just, and I don't have children, but just that kind of feeling of, well, I can't give up because those younger people are still fighting and they're going to face it. So you've just got to hang around and support that kind of thing in whatever way you can. So it's, I'm sure it's much more intense when they're your own children, but this wonderful surge of activism from the young is like a shot in the arm to me as an older person too. Yeah, they're not giving up. I can't give up. No,
2: I, I think that's exactly right. You know, And I mean, I think if I was a young person, well, I'm um, if I was younger than I am, um, speaking as a middle-aged person, but I mean, I think that they have a right to be very, very, very angry, you know, and that we probably have not yet seen the real expression of that rage. You know, I mean, it seems to me that the rage, I mean, there's a lot of rage in our politics at the moment, but it's mostly the rage of the old and of the powerful, um, and I think there is a kind of rage of the young coming about the world that we're leaving them, you know, and that's that's going to be interesting when that happens. But I mean, look, I you, you have to. I mean, and the other thing about having kids is that I mean, how do you talk to them about this stuff? What do you say to them? I don't. I don't actually have an answer to any of those questions. But also, you know, you we've talked a lot about kind of despair and fear and lots of things about having kids is there's a lot of kind of hope and happiness there as well. You know, and I guess that's one of the things I was trying to write about in Clade was that kind of sense of the ongoingness of life, about that sense that, you know, even in the worst moments, people are still living, they're still changing, they're still growing up, you know, they're still meeting each other, they're still falling in love. I mean, all of that kind of business of human life continues. And there is a kind of worth in reminding ourselves of that because it's one of the things that stops us despairing It's one of the things that stops us giving up.
0: Mm, absolutely. If we're trying to save something, you've got to also value and appreciate and celebrate what we're trying to save. And I, I thought it was really interesting what you said about the rage that's coming because it made me think that that's one of the things that you have, when you say, how do you talk about your ch- to your children? I would say that you've probably got a head start on a lot of people because you've explored the feelings about it. So you're not going to... Um, run away from their rage and despair and joy and all the rest of it. I guess that's something I was thinking that sort of as an older person that we can do too is to actually not run away from the feelings of it, not run away from the reality of it so that when these protests because of who we've elected do get stronger and do get more confronting that we're there able to support them rather than react with horror at that kind of outpouring of these strong emotions.
2: Yeah, no, I, 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 think that's, I think that's right. You know, I mean, I think that we need to find ways of expressing it which are helpful. You know, I mean, having said that, I do think that, you know, I was just, last week Jonathan Franzen published that piece uh, in the New Yorker, which was roundly and I think justifiably critiqued, criticised by a lot of people. You know, I didn't think it was a very good piece. I thought it was very silly in a series of ways. I thought that it was weirdly apolitical. I thought a number of things about it. But one of the things I did think was interesting about it was, was about someone actually being prepared to talk about their feelings. You know, someone being prepared to talk about their sense of confusion and despair and I don't think he did a very good job of finding a way through it or of contextualizing it for himself or anything like that but I actually think we need to start being prepared to talk about that confusion you know we need to be start being able to talk about that fear you know because it's it's kind of taboo There's a really interesting study by a Norwegian sociologist called Kari Norgaard which I in fact talk about in the Mianjin essay it's quite famous and she spent a winter in a town in Norway. And this town was one where all of their kind of cultural activities and economy was based around the snow. And the snow would come and they'd go ice fishing and they'd go skiing and they'd do all of these things. And one year the snow just didn't come. And she said what was really interesting was people understood why that had happened. They understood it was about climate change and they understood what the kind of processes driving it were, but nobody talked about it. And, and she said that there was this, what she called a process of constructive denial, which is where people don't talk about things because they're too upsetting and too difficult, you know. And I think we need to find a way of moving past that kind of constructive denial and to a point where we actually kind of confront and, you know, deal with is probably a strong word, but actually kind of acknowledge the way we feel because until we start doing that we're not going to recognize how serious the crisis is and until we recognize how serious the crisis is we're not going to do anything about it
0: yeah it's like becoming vulnerable to those feelings rather than trying to push them away and i think you do that beautifully and yet your essay is so much more powerful than franzens and so i hope you'll you get as much reach with that in fact I would recommend if people are look if if anyone's in a book group, I'd really recommend getting this issue of Mianjin because there's a lot of interesting pieces in it. And maybe pairing it with Clayd as well to start that kind of discussion based in clear headedly, clear sightedly looking it in the face. One of my favourite quotes is something about it's um things are way too bad and it's way too late for pessimism. I'm
2: not sure that's my line, but it's a good line, you know. Yeah, yeah but I mean, I actually think it's really important to. I think it's incredibly confronting to talk about this stuff and we actually need to start talking about it. You know, and I constantly censor myself about it. You know, I don't talk to people about what I know, you know, I don't talk to people about, you know, having thought it through where we are and that, I guess that, that's something we need to move past. You don't also, I mean, you also don't talk to people about how frightened you are and how, you know, how difficult it can be emotionally, you know, and I think we need to start both talking about that and, recognizing that people don't necessarily say the smartest things or behave the best in those situations you know which would go back to the, the friends and thing but also that you know there is real value in trying to think through what our response should be in that situation
0: indeed thank you so much for writing that essay and there's also going to be a live event in melbourne i think you're in discussion with sophie cunningham who's also written recently a wonderful book called The City of Trees. Do you want to tell us a bit when that's on and where it is?
2: Uh, yes, it's the University of Melbourne on the 25th of September, which I'm pretty sure is a Wednesday. Uh, you'll be able to find the link online. Tickets are free. It's me and Sophie talking, I guess, kind of talking about the essay and and I guess trying to think through some of the issues around it. And as you say, Sophie's book City of Trees is a marvellous, marvellous book. And, and it's kind of grappling with many of these same Questions as well, like how do you talk about grief? How do you think about grief? You know, how do you actually make these things that we don't want to talk about? How do you get them in the world and get people talking about them? Yeah, and get them talking about them in a way that doesn't become about a performance of despair.
0: So, before we go, do you have a favourite quote you'd like to share with climactic and artbreaker listeners?
2: Yeah, no, I don't know There's it's a favourite quote, but I've been reading Barry Lopez's book Horizon over the last few months. And there's a moment right at the beginning in the prologue, which the first time I read it reduced me to tears. You know, he's talking about kind of crisis and he gets to the end and he says, what is going to happen to all of us now in a time of militant factions of daily violence? And he goes on to say, I want to wish each stranger around me, every one of them, an untroubled life. I want everyone here to survive what is coming. You know, that that seems to me to be the sentiment that we need to have going forward. You know, I want everyone here to survive what's coming.
0: And if you were to give a piece of advice to your younger self as a writer, what would that be?
2: Um, If I was going to give advice to myself, (laughs) don't worry so much. Uh, Look, if I was talking to myself, I think the thing I'd say is don't be afraid to do the things that you believe in. And I'm not sure that I ever have been particularly, but I think I've worried more about that than I needed to. You know, I mean, I think there's a great merit in just doing the things you want and hoping that they work out.
0: Thank you. That's beautiful. Thank you, James Bradley. You've been listening to Artbreaker on the Climactic Network. You can find more about James's writings at cityoftongues.com city of tongues or one word, dot com. and the books we've been talking about are clade published by penguin and the change series for young adult readers published by macmillan and the essay which i highly recommend you read is in the spring 2019 issue of me and it's called unearthed last days of the anthropocene we'll put all the links in the show notes thank you for listening thank you for sharing keep reaching out to each other Keep finding joy. Keep choosing for a better future.
1: Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times.